The People's Pharmacy Podcast is supported in part by Cocovia. Cocovia cocoa flavanols support both cardiovascular health and cognitive function by promoting healthy blood flow. That transports oxygen and nutrients to vital organs and muscles, including your heart and brain. Cocovia now comes in an even more concentrated formula with 450 milligrams of cocoa flavanols, five times more than the leading dark chocolate bar, and 15 times more than the leading cocoa powder. Cocovia has a proprietary process that preserves cocoa flavanols at the highest levels. The product undergoes rigorous testing at every stage to guarantee the highest level of cocoa flavanols per serving and to provide the purest, highest quality product possible. People's Pharmacy listeners can now try Cocovia for 25% off by using the code PEOPLES25 at cocovia.com. Kidney stones are on the rise. The pain can be unbearable. Once you've had one, you're at risk for more. How can you prevent kidney stones? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Millions of people develop kidney stones each year. What are they made of? A geologist will tell us how surprisingly similar kidney stones are to actual rocks that form in hot springs and coral skeletons in the ocean. They continually form, dissolve, and form again. A leading expert will tell us how kidney stones are treated and what you can do to prevent them. Hint, drink a lot of water. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what can you do to prevent kidney stones from forming and avoid a recurrence if you've had one? First, the news. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. A trial of a highly anticipated coronavirus vaccine has hit a speed bump. One of the most promising COVID-19 vaccines is from the University of Oxford in collaboration with the pharmaceutical firm AstraZeneca. AZD-1222 is in Phase 3 trials in both Great Britain and the United States. This vaccine is part of Operation Warp Speed. This week, however, the trial was put on hold while the company investigates a serious adverse reaction affecting one participant. AstraZeneca has stated that this review of safety data is a standard procedure when a participant experiences an unexpected complication. No one knows how long the company will take to complete its review or whether this pause will slow down the development of the AZD-1222 vaccine. Flu season is right around the corner, and public health officials are concerned. They fear that influenza infections on top of COVID-19 could be a deadly combination. That's why they're urging people to get their flu shots early. There's a glimmer of good news, however. Australia, South Africa, and other countries in the Southern Hemisphere are just finishing the flu season. Unlike almost everything else in 2020, this year's influenza infections were surprisingly light. In August of 2019, Australian laboratories had verified more than 60,000 cases of influenza. By August of 2020, however, there were only just about 100. South Africa would normally have 1,000 laboratory-confirmed cases during their winter, but this year they had just one. Not all cases of influenza are laboratory-confirmed, but the difference is dramatic. 
Health officials attribute this to steps taken to reduce coronavirus transmission, wearing masks, staying home, maintaining distance, and washing hands. This good news from the Southern Hemisphere should not lead to complacency. Americans will still need to get a flu shot and practice preventive measures to avoid both influenza and COVID-19. A popular pain reliever might change people's perceptions of risk, according to researchers at The Ohio State University. They administered acetaminophen, the active ingredient in Tylenol, to some student volunteers and look-alike placebo pills to others. Then the participants answered questions about how risky they judged various activities to be. The ones who had taken acetaminophen were much less worried about the risk of bungee jumping speaking out on an unpopular topic, or walking home through a dangerous neighborhood. In another study involving 545 student volunteers, students played a game after taking placebo or acetaminophen. In it, they blew up a virtual balloon on a computer screen. Those who had taken Tylenol were more willing to keep going and risk breaking the balloon, thus losing their winnings, than those who had taken placebo. The researchers worry that someone with COVID-19 might be less likely to practice prevention if they take acetaminophen, often recommended for fever. There's growing evidence that a class of medications called anticholinergics could be bad for the brain. Such drugs interfere with the actions of a brain neurochemical called acetylcholine. A wide variety of medications have anticholinergic activity. They include antihistamines such as diphenhydramine, the active ingredient in Benadryl, and most over-the-counter PM pain medicines. Health professionals may not realize that some of the drugs they prescribe for anxiety, depression, Parkinson's disease, overactive bladder, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease have anticholinergic activity. A new study in the journal Neurology reports that older people taking at least one anticholinergic drug have an increased risk for developing mild cognitive impairment over the next decade. Those at higher genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease were at far greater risk from such medications. The senior author cautions her medical colleagues to try to de-prescribe such drugs before people begin to develop signs of cognitive impairment. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. An estimated 3 million Americans experience a kidney stone each year. The pain can be intense. That's why half a million people annually land in emergency departments with kidney stones. To find out what it's like to deal with kidney stones, we turn to Sue Wasilek. She works in student affairs at Duke University. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Sue. We understand you have some experience with kidney stones. Can you tell us what it feels like? Well, unfortunately, I do have some experience with kidney stones. What's interesting about my particular experience is that I didn't really have any significant pain 
um, until I was at the point of actually passing one of the stones. And what did it feel like then? It's excruciating. I've never had children. I've been told that that's what it feels like to give birth. It made me glad that I'd never had children. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. extremely, it's extremely painful, and I actually passed three stones in my life. When did you realize you needed medical attention? Um, the first sign that I had that something wasn't right is that when I would come back from my morning jog, I would find blood in my urine. And this continued to happen on a recurring basis. But what was interesting is the blood never appeared in my um, urine unless it was after a run. And so, you know, it seemed pretty clear to me that something was irritating something while I was running. And eventually I sought medical attention. I'd like to know a little more about the pain. Was it a, a burning pain, a sharp pain, a dull pain? For people who have never experienced a kidney stone, what did it feel like? Um, it's more of a cramping. It's, it's, it's an abdominal-type pain. It's, I'm, I'm trying to compare it to something else that someone may have felt, you know, in their stomach or their lower abdomen, but it doesn't last very long, so it's not it's not an extended pain. It's it's just it's almost the type of pain that comes from um, uh, constipation, but but much much more severe. And where where exactly was it located? Did you feel it in front, on the side, in the back? I mean, where? How would someone know that they might be having a, a kidney stone problem? Well, the pain only came when I was passing the stone for me. Uh, mine was pretty much in the front, and I felt it, again, sort of in the lower abdomen. And then suddenly you just pass the stone. It, it comes out, you know, as you're, as you're urinating, and it's an immediate relief, immediate relief. How was it diagnosed, and what treatment have you gotten? So um, the actual diagnosis involved a number of different tests. It started with a simple urinalysis. I then had what's called a cystoscopy, where they take a camera and insert it into your bladder to see if they can see any growths or anything else that's going on. I also had an ultrasound. I had x-rays, and I had a CAT scan eventually. So they found three different kidney stones, and so I knew from the get-go that I was going to have to pass all three. They were of a size that the doctor said I should be able to pass, and I did. Having gone through all of this, Sue, I'm guessing that you would prefer never to have another one. What are you doing to try to prevent a recurrence? Well, you're absolutely right. I don't ever want to have another one. Um, even though the doctor that worked with me was phenomenal and fabulous, I don't care if I ever see him again. But uh, they, I, I think one of my main causes of my stones is dehydration. I do exercise a lot. I tend to sweat a lot. 
and I learned that not staying hydrated can cause stones. So that was one thing that I've tried to do is be much more aware and cognizant of my level of hydration. And so I try to hydrate a bit more. I have found that coconut water is a great way for me to hydrate because it has all the electrolytes in it that I need um, as a result of the, the sweating from exercising. So coconut water has been one of my go-to beverages every day. The second thing is that I actually had the stones analyzed, which is not an unusual thing to do. And it was determined that I have a particular type of stone where the composition of the stone is of a particular type. And so they are able to tell you what foods to try to avoid, at least foods to avoid in high quantities. And unfortunately, one of the things that I was finding that I was eating a lot of was kale. And kale is the type, is one food that actually contributes to my type of kidney stone. So I have been, uh, again, very cautious about eating particular foods, especially in large quantities. There is a medication that was prescribed to me that I was to take two or three times a day before I ate, which would help me balance the acidity of my system so that I wouldn't produce stones any longer. And I chose not to take that medication. My hope was that with better hydration and with a higher awareness to the foods that I was eating, that I wouldn't have to take the medication. And I haven't taken it. Sue, thank you so much for talking with us today on The People's Pharmacy. You are so welcome. You've been listening to Sue Wasilek, who works in student affairs at Duke University. To find out how kidney stones are diagnosed and treated, we turn now to Dr. Glenn Preminger, professor and chief of urology and director of the Duke Comprehensive Kidney Stone Center. Dr. Glenn Preminger, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Thank you, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Preminger, we have talked to people who have experienced kidney stone pain, and they often say it's the worst pain I have ever had in my life. What's it like as a physician to deal with acute kidney stone pain? Well, what you're describing is what we term renal colic, and that's a condition where anytime there's an acute obstruction of the urinary tract, whether it's from a kidney stone that's fallen into the kidney tube or the ureter that causes acute obstruction of urine, that causes severe pain. And you're exactly right. I have women who tell me that it's worse than childbirth, natural childbirth. And uh, again, grown men can be brought to their knees. And so It's very important that we identify this, uh, that we treat the patients immediately, usually with IV narcotics to get their pain under control. Recently, uh, however, we found that Ketorolac or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories work quite well with acute kidney pain from uh, obstructing stone. Dr. Preminger, I wonder if you can explain to us what is a kidney stone? How does it get started and... Are they all the same? Well, kidney stones are actually uh, very different, but similar in the fact that they're formed by concretions or the accumulation of crystals within the urine that come together to form a stone. 
there are various types of kidney stones. They can be composed of calcium or non-calcium substances such as uric acid uh, or um, struvite, or they can be caused by excessive amount of medication sometimes can cause kidney stones. Like which ones? Well, uh, we've seen stones from patients that have been on indinavir, quite uh, uncommon now because uh, people are aware of this, but the non-calcium stones are composed usually of uric acid or cysteine. Uh, Cysteine is a genetic problem where cysteine levels will build up within the urine and come together to form crystals and subsequently a stone or uric acid, but 80% of patients will make calcium oxalate stones. How do you diagnose a kidney stone, and what would be symptoms that should lead someone to request some kind of diagnostic procedure? Well, sometimes it's, it's difficult to put a finger on exactly what's causing your pain. The best way to make the diagnosis of a stone would be to have some type of an imaging study. Normally, in most emergency departments across the United States, a non-contrasted or what we call a stone protocol CT, which is a low-dose CT scan, is very efficient and um, effective in its ability to diagnose stones as a cause of pain. But sometimes it could be something like an aortic aneurysm or even a ruptured appendix can give you very similar types of flank or abdominal discomfort. So in most cases, the patient that uh, presents to their either family physician or to the emergency department will get a non-contrasted CT. Alternatively, an ultrasound or some other types of imaging studies might be recommended. Occasionally, you'll you'll have blood in the urine. You could have a fever or uh, recurrent urinary tract infections can be another indication that you may have a kidney stone. So that sounds like those are all indications that you should see your doctor. I think so. I think for if you if you notice blood in the urine, if you have a fever uh, with voiding symptoms such as urinary frequency or feel like you have might have a urinary tract infection or you have acute flank pain as we talked about earlier that renal colic, definitely see your primary care physician or to present to an emergency department. You're listening to Dr. Glenn Preminger, the James F. Glenn Professor of Urology and Chief of the Division of Urologic Surgery at Duke University Medical Center. He's also Director of the Duke Comprehensive Kidney Stone Center. After the break, we'll find out about the kidney stone belt in the South. How do you treat kidney stones? When might they need surgery? What type of surgery or other intervention might be needed? What are the pros and cons? We'll also find out what you can do to reduce your chances of a repeat kidney stone. Are there foods or supplements you should avoid? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This People's Pharmacy podcast is brought to you in part by Verisana.com. 
Verizona Lab offers home health tests that allow you to monitor your hormones and health conditions. You can take control of the quantitative assessment of your health and learn about male and female hormone balance, the stress hormone cortisol, leaky gut, gluten intolerance, or your gut microbiome. Take a more active role in tracking your health and take 20% off your first order of a mail-in testing opportunity with the discount code people. That's uppercase P-E-O-P-L-E. To learn more, go to verisana.com. That's V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. If you'd like to purchase a CD of this show, you can call 800-732-2334. It's show number 1148. Or you can find it at our website, peoplespharmacy.com. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients. That's K-A-Y-A biotics.com. Today, our topic is kidney stones. What are they? How are they treated? And how can you prevent them? We're talking with one of the country's leading experts on this topic. Dr. Glenn Preminger is the James F. Glenn Professor of Urology and Chief of the Division of Urologic Surgery at Duke University. He's also director of the Duke Comprehensive Kidney Stone Center. Dr. Preminger, uh, we sometimes hear that in North Carolina and, and almost throughout the Southeast, we're in the kidney stone belt. What is the kidney stone belt and why? So the kidney stone belt is a term that we use to describe the higher incidence of stones in the southeastern United States, usually from North Carolina to Florida and then over to Texas. That part of the United States has a much higher incidence of kidney stones. It's It's been thought for many years that maybe this was diet-related. Could it the, be an iced tea belt? Exactly, that people would say, well, it's, it's the high oxalate in iced tea, or maybe it's dehydration from the humidity and the heat. In fact, though, we've done studies uh, where we collected 24-hour urine tests from individuals from all across the United States and have never been able to document that people in the Southeast have a higher incidence of high oxalate in the urine or low urine volume, which are two of the parameters that we use to make the diagnosis of the etiology of kidney stones. So although, yes, the incidence of stones is higher in the Southeast, we still don't know the exact reason. How are kidney stones treated today? You know, we've heard that, well, some people will pass their stone. Other people have to have surgery. And then there's something called lithotripsy. Give us a sense of what, when, where, and why. Surely. Well, whether treatment is needed for a stone really depends upon the size and the location of the offending stone. If it's a small stone that's in the ureter, in the kidney tube, many times we can treat that patient with what we call medical expulsive therapy. And this is a uh, treatment regimen that uses uh, 
a medication called tamsulosin. It's an alpha blocker. And there have been a number of randomized prospective trials which have demonstrated that treatment with this medication along with some hydration will facilitate the spontaneous passage of these stones. What's the drug doing? Well, studies have shown that tamsulosin or alpha blockers as a general class will actually relax the ureter and decrease the pressure within the collecting system or the hollow portion of the kidney. It's somewhat counterintuitive where you would think if you increase the pressure, you could force the stone out of the kidney. But in fact, if you relax the ureter, there's a much higher likelihood that the stone will pass spontaneously, and alpha blockers have been demonstrated to relax the ureter. They're often prescribed to men with enlarged prostate glands to help them go to the bathroom fewer times, especially at night. Exactly. And so tamsulosin, which is now a generic medication, has been around for over 20 years, and it relaxes the bladder neck. Well, there's also alpha fibers within the ureter. And so the thought is that the alpha fibers in the ureter are relaxed by the tamsulosin, thereby facilitating stone passage. So first thing, if it's reasonably small, a pain reliever to allow you to continue to function and not scream, and this dilator called tamsulosin. What if that doesn't work? Now what? So If we see a patient or uh, we get a call from the ED that a patient's been seen, yes, if the patient's afebrile and we're able to get their pain under control with medication, uh, we will start them on uh, the tamsulosin and make an appointment to see that patient back in our office in about six weeks. Because studies have demonstrated that of all the stones that are going to pass spontaneously, 85% will pass within six weeks. So we'll see the patient back in the office, and hopefully they have a present for me. They say, oh, I passed this stone. I say, congratulations. Uh And then we talk about, well, what are your risks for making new stones in the future? And then we can talk about potentially preventative therapy. Ah, I would like to ask about that, please. Well, before we get the preventive therapy and the prevention of the recurrence, what about the stones that don't pass? So, right, if if the patient does not pass their stone or they're still uncomfortable after six weeks, we want to get repeat imaging to document that the stone is still present, where is it located, and then depending upon the location and the size of the stone will dictate what our treatment removal option is. And so currently there's three different options. One is called shockwave lithotripsy, which is a actually a machine called the kidney stone machine that sends sound waves into the body to fragment a stone, and then the patient has to pass those stone fragments down the ureter. There's another procedure called ureteroscopy, which is a very small, either rigid or flexible telescope that we can pass through the bladder, up the ureter, up the kidney tube, and potentially into the kidney if need be. And using a very small laser fiber, we can fragment stones and remove them with small little baskets. Or if the stone is very large, we perform what's called percutaneous nephrolithotomy, which is, again, an endoscopic procedure, which we use a rigid telescope that we pass through the patient's flank under x-ray guidance. 
we look inside the kidney, identify the stone, and then we have devices that we can use to fragment and remove the stone. The advantage of all of these procedures is that they're currently what we would term minimally invasive as compared to the procedures that we used to do 30 years ago or 40 years ago when I was a resident in training where we used to make an incision from the middle of the of the abdomen to the middle of the back, we would open up the patient's kidney and take out the stone. In 2018, it's very uncommon for us to do open surgery, and so we have these minimally invasive techniques where we can remove the pain and get the patient back to their normal routine much quicker. That type of surgery must require a long recovery time. Uh, yes, the open surgery, usually the patient was out of commission for, for four to six weeks. Again, with the minimally invasive techniques we have now, they can be back at their normal routine within a week or so. Now, Dr. Perminger, I understand that once you've had a kidney stone, you're at risk for others. Is that true? That's absolutely true. And in fact, the data suggests that once you've made one stone, uh, you have about a 50 to 60% chance of making a second or an additional stone within the next, say, five to six years. That risk or that percentage will change depending upon uh, your risk factors. For example, if you have a family history of stones, if you take certain medications or supplements, or if you have certain medical problems such as bowel disease or bone issues, you could be at a risk for even forming a new stone at a faster rate. Supplements, you said. What kind of supplements put you at risk for kidney stones? Well, the, the main supplement that we see is actually vitamin C. There are a lot of people that take high doses of vitamin C. They're big believers in the lioness pauling admonition that high doses of vitamin C will protect you. The problem is, is that high doses of vitamin C, usually more than 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C per day, the vitamin C gets converted into oxalate and then high oxalate levels in the urine can lead to an increased risk for kidney stones. So anyone who's ever had a kidney stone wants to prevent another one. What are the strategies? So the strategies are at least for the patients that I see, we offer them two different options. One option is we can just talk about conservative measures of increasing their fluid intake, so we increase their urine volume, and we moderate their intake of certain foods such as calcium or oxalate, foods that contain large amounts of calcium or oxalate. Such as? Uh, calcium would be dairy products, obviously, uh, and then high oxalate containing foods, the big three being spinach, tea, iced tea or, or uh, hot tea, and nuts, uh, with spinach being by far the highest offender of having large levels of oxalate. So that might be one option where if they increase their fluid, so they're making a minimum of three liters of urine per day. And that means drinking three liters? actually drinking more like uh, four liters a day to make three liters. So we, tell, we ask our patients to drink 100 ounces a day. Uh, and if they can do that, they usually make somewhere in the order of 2,500 to 3,000 cc's of urine per day. 
moderate their intake of dairy products, salty foods, and high oxalate-containing foods. And in most people, if we make, if they're able to follow those recommendations, we can reduce their risk of recurrent stones by about 40 to 50%. Alternatively, we do what we call a comprehensive metabolic evaluation where we have the patient collect two 24-hour urine samples, all the urine that, that they make over 24 hours on two consecutive days, and we analyze the urine for the various stone-forming risk factors. Based on that information, we can identify the specific problems that cause our patient's kidney stones, and we correct those issues with either diet or fluids, and in many cases, medication. And if we're able to correct those problems, we can reduce their risk of recurrent stones by more like 90 to 95%. Wow, that's impressive. What about lemonade. We've been told that lemonade might have some benefit. And what drugs can you add to that? You mentioned there are some treatment options. Well, the choice of medication or lemonade for that matter really depends on, again, what we find with our metabolic evaluation. For patients that have high calcium levels in the urine, we would prescribe uh, a diuretic, what's called a thiazide diuretic. It's actually a fluid pill that helps most people get rid of excess fluid in the body, but we're using it for one of its secondary actions, which is high calcium in the urine. And diuretics have been demonstrated to get rid of excess calcium or lower the calcium levels in the urine. Citrate or low urinary citrate is another one of the probably the second most common risk factor. And there's where lemonade might be helpful because we and others have done studies to demonstrate that lemon juice contains a fair amount of citrate. And by drinking about four ounces of lemon juice per day, we've demonstrated that you can raise the urinary citrate levels. Alternatively, there are other medications uh, such as allopurinol, or others that we can use, depending, again, upon the patient's underlying metabolic abnormalities. So allopurinol, that's a, a medication that's often used to treat people with gout, and it lowers uric acid. Is that what it's doing for the person who makes kidney stones? We use it in patients that have calcium oxalate stones caused by high uric acid levels. And so what we're trying to do is lower the uric acid levels in the urine. Exactly right. Are there conditions or disorders that are preludes, basically, to people making kidney stones? In other words, is the kidney stone sometimes a symptom not just of a problem in the kidney, but a more comprehensive problem? Well, some people that have uh, bowel issues, uh, they've had previous bowel surgery, or they have inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. These people oftentimes have uh, malabsorption and they have uh, chronic diarrhea. That can be a setup for kidney stones where they, they get dehydrated, they're losing fluid with their diarrhea, they're also losing alkali, and they become acidotic and can form kidney stones. In addition, patients with chronic bone issues like osteoporosis or osteopenia can also be at risk for kidney stones. Dr. Premature, what does your crystal ball tell you about the future? Are there ways to dissolve kidney stones? Are there any new 
medical treatments that might be able to prevent kidney stones in people who are at high risk? Well, my crystal ball tells me a couple things. Uh, First, uh, is that the incidence of kidney stones has increased dramatically over the last 30 years. Any idea why? It's probably due to uh, diet and obesity in in the Western population, if you will. A high acid ash diet or a diet that's high in animal protein or patients who are overweight are, are at a significantly higher risk of kidney stones. And that's the reason that we see that kidney stone disease is actually becoming more prevalent, not only in the U.S., but in other parts of the world. For example, 50 years ago in Japan, kidney stone disease was not a significant problem, but now with the more of a Western diet in Japanese culture, their incidence of stones is almost as high as ours in the U.S. With regards to stone removal, there's only one type of stone that can be dissolved, and that's a uric acid stone. These are patients that not only have high uric acid levels in the urine, but very acid urines. They excrete a lot of acid in their urine, so the pH of the urine is actually quite low. In these patients with alkali medication, usually a medication that we call potassium citrate, we can dissolve stones. But truthfully, calcium stones or cysteine stones, we don't have a treatment right now where we can dissolve those types of stones. And in the future, any hope? Currently, uh, one of my partners, uh, Michael Lipkin, is is working with a group of um, biomedical engineers at Duke. Uh, They're looking at ways that they could put a slippery coating on stones uh, not necessarily to dissolve the stones, but if you if you have some small stones up in the kidney and we can apply that slippery coating, it might be not unreasonable that stones may pass easier or spontaneously and we can get rid of them that way. Dr. Glenn Perminger, thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Well, thank you for letting me be here. You've been listening to Dr. Glenn Preminger, the James F. Glenn Professor of Urology and Chief of the Division of Urologic Surgery at Duke University Medical Center. He's also director of the Duke Comprehensive Kidney Stone Center. Joe, we didn't talk about it with Dr. Preminger, but acid-suppressing drugs like uh, Prilosec or Prevacid can also increase the risk for kidney stones. And what else can you do to prevent them by eating certain foods or avoiding others? You want to avoid eating too much beets or Swiss chard or kale or chocolate or turmeric. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to find out what kidney stones have in common with coral reef. Is the formation of a kidney stone similar in any way to the formation of rocks near a hot spring? A geologist has found that kidney stones are far more dynamic than you might have guessed. What role do microbes play in stone formation? We'll find out if there are ways to apply the science of kidney stone formation to help patients. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy Podcast is supported in part by Cocovia. 
Cocovia cocoflavanols support both cardiovascular health and cognitive function by promoting healthy blood flow. That transports oxygen and nutrients to vital organs and muscles, including your heart and brain. Cocovia now comes in an even more concentrated formula with 450 milligrams of cocoflavanols, five times more than the leading dark chocolate bar, and 15 times more than the leading cocoa powder. Cocovia has a proprietary process that preserves cocoflavanols at the highest levels. The product undergoes rigorous testing at every stage to guarantee the highest level of cocoflavanols per serving and to provide the purest, highest quality product possible. People's Pharmacy listeners can now try Cocovia for 25% off by using the code PEOPLES25 at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. If you'd like to purchase a CD of this show, you can call 800-732-2334. It's show number 1148. You can also place the order online at peoplespharmacy.com. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from hypoallergenic organic ingredients. That's K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com. Today, we're discussing kidney stones. Fascinating research shows that these have more in common with actual stones than you might imagine. Dr. Bruce Falk is a professor in the Department of Geology, the Department of Microbiology, and the Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He serves as director of the Illinois Roy J. Carver Biotechnology Center. His research specialties include global geobiologic studies of coral reefs, hot springs, energy exploration, Roman Aqueducts, and Human Kidney Stones. He's author of The Art of Yellowstone Science, Mammoth Hot Springs as a Window on the Universe. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Bruce Falk. Thank you. It's good to be here. Dr. Falk, you are a professor of geology. You are also, uh, in a sense, a microbiologist. How in the world... Did you ever get interested in kidney stones? Well, the future is to integrate all the sciences together to answer and approach these very challenging um, problems that face society. And I'm on one of those cutting edges of integrating geology and biology together to be able to answer questions like how do corals respond to sea surface temperature change? Uh, how do we uh, find oil and gas without uh, polluting the environment so much? Um, and, and how can we uh, understand um, the ancient Romans and how they used the aqueducts? And so it was a natural fit to be able to uh, begin to look at some human medicine and apply these concepts of integrated geology and biology to, uh, to, to have some new understandings of how these processes work. Well, that is interesting, but none of those really important applications lead me straight to kidney stones. So tell me, what do kidney stones have in common with Roman aqueducts or coral reefs? Well, it turns out that um, as life has evolved on planet Earth for approximately the last 4 billion years, um, there's always been a, a need for life to be able to tackle the problem of how does it deal with temperature, 
uh, salinity, acidity, flow, uh, the different conditions of the environment in which it lives. And one of those solutions has always required that life has, has uh, been able to harness uh, the idea that minerals grow and crystallize out of water. So we call that, uh, that process biomineralization. So in each of these different, seemingly wildly different environments, uh, a place like a coral reef where a coral is growing a skeleton, it's growing a skeleton out of warm, salty water. And at one level, that engagement of uh, organisms and warm, salty water is uh, very analogous to that that we find within the human kidney. Now, we have been to Yellowstone, and we have seen the hot springs. And I have to say that the formations are just gorgeous. And, and I'm looking at a picture that you had something to do with. It's a picture of a kidney stone, and it looks beautiful. Tell us about this connection. Yes. So we decided that, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, um, all of nature is so beautiful. And what we did was the University of Illinois has got a long-standing relationship with the Mayo Clinic. And they uh, made a call for uh, proposals that were, you know, on the cutting edge, but that other places might not want to see funded. And uh, we made a proposal with our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic and also at Indiana University. And uh, we came up with uh, the following, that our ability to analyze the growth of minerals that have been laid down by organisms, be them single-celled organisms like microbes or multi-celled organisms like corals and humans, um, this, this idea of biomineralization, there might be universal principles that we can uh, link and engage all the way from a hot spring um, uh, to a human kidney. And so the exact same techniques that we've uh, developed for the last 25 years in my labs here at Illinois, the techniques of being able to take uh, some of these beautiful rock deposits that you see at Yellowstone, bring them back to the laboratory, cut them, slice them so thinly that you can actually shine light through them, and you can see through them. They look like uh, rice paper. We make the, the rock so thin. And by analyzing them using lasers and optical light and electrons, uh, we have the ability to go in on a very tiny scale, um, the scale of, of nanometers. Uh, one nanometer is one billionth of a meter. And we analyze the crystalline structure and the engagement of individual cells in their chemistry together to see how that larger rock deposit is made by these very, very tiny processes. And so by looking at that for the first time uh, in kidney stones, we saw much more than we ever expected. In fact, some of the kidney stone uh, crystal structure and shape and colors and chemistry they're just simply remarkable, and they're things that uh, have now immediately gone to the point where anal analyzing the kidney stone in this way has given us brand new insights to understand how to understand uh, some of the uh, rock deposits you see in Yellowstone or how a coral grows its skeleton. Uh, Dr. Falk, I understand that most clinicians, most kidney specialists have a an answer to kidney stones, and yeah. that is drink water. Lots yep. and lots of water. And sometimes they say, well, you can have some lemonade as uh, yep. <laughs> an alternative. You can't stand that much water. And that way you can keep somehow preventing the crystallization of these um, kidney stones. Yep. Is there some sense to that? Oh, absolutely. You know, what, what, what we're trying to propose is we're not throwing out anything that's been done before. In fact, you know, this whole idea of hydration, critical. Um, you know, the oldest reference that we have in the paper was from 1667. And there was a, a, a medical doctor named Nicholas Steno in Copenhagen in 1667. And um, he uh, loved geology. 
And so he went out to the white cliffs, you know, that occur uh, like in Stevens Clint and things around uh, Copenhagen. And he went out and he actually published a whole bunch of things as a kind of a, a weekend geologist who was a, a medical doctor. And then he had the insight that, hey, you know, maybe we should look at kidney stones in this kind of way. And then ironically, Nicholas Steno died of kidney stones. And then what we found is that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, medical doctors were focusing on the stone. And then World War II came around, and then um, there was just you know, a big shift at that time in terms of they were looking for ways to help troops that were very quick. Well, then after World War II, all the emphasis went to urine chemistry, and that's where the idea of diluting the, the, the urine so it won't grow the stones. That's when that shift took place. And it's remained that way until now. These absolutely brilliant cutting edge urologists and nephrologists, it's really been a focus on the urine and they left the stone behind. So what we're trying to do now is say, hey, listen, let's take the whole package. Let's look at hydration and and dilution of these chemicals in the urine. Let's look at the diet. Unfortunately, oxalate is something we love to eat. Oxalate is in beer it's in wine, it's in rhubarb, it's in chocolate. <laughs> right. So it's going to be really hard to get rid of uh, oxalate from our diet, but we need to look at that. But then the wild card that was left off was mineral growth connected to the microbiome. Right. And of course, the, the explosion of the microbiome that you folks have so uh, elegantly reported on for so long, you know, they say that luck is the intersection of preparation and opportunity. And so I just feel like we're the luckiest people on the planet right now because we just hit in this sweet spot when we have the abilities to analyze the microbiome and our tools as geologists have now emerged and grown at the same pace. And now we can do all of our work now at the scale of one billionth of a meter. And that wasn't possible before. Now, previous analyses of kidney stones have been basically to say, what is your kidney stone made of so that you will know how to avoid it? But what you're saying is actually it's a much more dynamic process than just a chunk of mineral precipitating out in the urine. That's exactly right. As a geologist, I know that, and, and this has been well proven by you know thousands of geologists for a long time, is that rocks are dynamic entities. They, they grow, but they also are very uh, much full of pore space um, and water. And so you have chemical reactions that happen. And of course, there's microbes um, that live in water, and they engage in these chemical processes. So I've always expected rocks to be something that's quite dynamic. Um, they grow, they dissolve, they are engaged with life. And this happens many, many times throughout the history of a rock. So uh, we use the, the history of a rock to understand a process, like how does a mineral deposit grow in Yellowstone? How can we use that information to find that hot spring deposit on another planet like Mars? So when I went into this study with our colleagues uh, at Mayo, we had the expectation that, hey, maybe instead of them being boring lumps of rock that tell us nothing, maybe they are a very dynamic record. And it turns out that they are extremely active uh, deposits. They grow, but then they dissolve, and they grow, and they dissolve, and they grow, and they dissolve. And this is from uh, the interaction of urine, microbes, chemicals from the human kidney, and then the actual uh, rock minerals that are growing. And in this case, we looked at calcium oxalates. 
This is the most abundant type of uh, kidney stone that forms in humans on, on current planet Earth. So we chose the one that has the most, most reach and application uh, to people around the world. And instead of them being um, a static entity that just forms, and then we need to go in and break it up or take it out, it actually is an entity that grows and dissolves, grows and dissolves, and it interacts with the life forms called the microbes and the microbiome that live in the human kidney, as well as the kidney itself. It turns out that kidney stones are a natural tape recorder of the highest frequency uh, physiological dynamics that occur within the human kidney. So, I, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked with you about in depth is the microbiome of the yes. kidney and yes. the microbiology and what bacteria are actually playing a role here. And can we alter that microbiome? Exactly. And in fact, literally, as we speak, I have my, my small army of absolutely wonderful people called you know, postdocs and grad students. They're in the lab this morning. I was just down there. We've just successfully extracted uh, the microbiome that's actually captured and entombed in the kidney stone. So not only is the kidney stone giving us all the chemical and crystalline dynamics, but microbial cells are trapped in the crystals. And so this morning we were comparing the microbiome trapped for the first time in kidney stones with the microbiome trapped in oral dental plaque. And um, we're seeing incredible similarities. Um, you know, you know the, the plaque that you get cleaned off your teeth every six months or whatever when you go to the dentist. We've also been comparing that. And it turns out that we now have a suite of about four or five microbes and, remarkably, fungus. There are fungi that are actually, you know, again, the microbes and the fungi, these are not the ones that are pathogens at all. These are just part of the healthy uh, microbiome. And so we're seeing, we, you know, when we went into it, our original hypothesis was, because I'm a geologist and I don't know any better, I just said, you know, food and water in through mouth, <laughs> in through body, out through kidney and processing. At some level, um, just from my work in Yellowstone, when the water comes out of the vents and flows down, uh, the, the microbes of the vent have some similarity to the microbes that are down in the cooler parts of the spring systems. So just from that idea, I just put this really, you know, very simplistic idea out there that the microbiome of the dental plaque would be similar to the microbiome of the entombed kidney stone. And as of this morning, for the very first time, they're about 75% similar. It's just remarkable. And some of those microbes we're finding are actually the same exact organisms that we've found in our work in the Great Barrier Reef on corals. They're the same ones living in the, uh, in the hot springs of Yellowstone, and they're the same ones that are um, uh, living in the deep subsurface of oil fields. So this kind of unifying, I'm calling this universal biomineralization. And these processes occur, it doesn't matter if you're inside the kidney or if you're in a hot spring in Yellowstone, it's still water, microbes, uh, multicellular organisms, and the, the secret ingredient that was also left off was the growth of the minerals. Well, of course, the holy grail of all of this, it, for the patient, of course, who uh, is susceptible to kidney stones, is, okay, Dr. Frack, now that you, as a geologist, have figured all this out, you know that there are bacteria, there are microbes in the kidney that are participating in this process, and calcium and oxalate and all these other minerals. How? How can we prevent them from creating stones that are going to hurt like heck when they pass? Or perhaps you mentioned that these stones dissolve and then grow and dissolve and grow. How can we get a little more emphasis on the dissolve phase so that they don't get big enough to make a problem? 
Exactly. Your, your, your insights are perfect. So this is where the analogy and the comparison with coral reefs, hot springs, the deep subsurface, deep ocean vents. These are the kind of processes that happen all the time. Microbes engage with the water. They engage and actually sometimes control the growth of the minerals. So we've run controlled experiments in a place like Mammoth Hot Springs. And working closely with the rangers with you know um, permits, we've been able to run controlled experiments there and prove that the microbes actually can create proteins that cause the minerals to grow faster. And so what our hope is now that uh, as we speak now, um, some of my graduate students are in the lab this morning uh, extracting some of the proteins and the microbes that are entombed within the layers of the crystals of the kidney stones we've looked at. And by analogy and comparison to these natural systems we've worked on, we believe that at least as a start, there's what we call five points of clinical intervention. There's five positions within the time history of the growth of the kidney stone where we think we can go in and actually analyze and then perhaps manipulate this magical combination of urine chemistry, microbes and their activity and their metabolisms, the activity and the biochemistry of the human kidney itself, and put that all together in the context of the mineral growth. And we think that maybe one thing that could come from this, and again, please know I'm a geologist and I'm, I'm working with the medical experts, but what we see as a possibility is that we could go into the, uh, the human kidney and be able to make the system remain at the point of dissolving instead of kicking back and going into growing the stone. So basically what we're seeing is that I, we think that a lot of humans uh, who are healthy, they actually do grow tiny stones, but then those stones dissolve again. But for people who have kidney disease, those stones grow, they partially dissolve, but then they don't dissolve all the way. And so then the next, the next phase of growing in the kidney, they have a, a seed or a nidus point that they can grow off of. So if we could go into these five different time periods within the growth of a kidney stone and get the organisms, the microbes, and the human chemistry to be able to, to cooperate, to keep it in the dissolving mode, then maybe we just uh, keep stones so tiny or dissolving that if they're so tiny, they don't hurt you and they can be expelled. That is very exciting. We will look forward to hearing about that. Dr. Bruce Falk, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Dr. Bruce Falk, Professor of Geology, Microbiology, and Genomic Biology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's director of the Illinois Roy J. Carver Biotechnology Center, which performs genomic, proteomic, metabolomic, and bioinformatic analyses for laboratories around the world. He conducts geobiology research on coral reefs, hot springs, energy exploration, Roman aqueducts, and human kidney stones. His book is The Art of Yellowstone Science, Mammoth Hot Springs as a Window on the Universe. That's all the time we have. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski is the engineer. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. The People's Pharmacy is produced at the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. The People's Pharmacy theme music is by B.J. Lederman. To order today's show, you can call 800-732-2334. The show is number 1,148. That number again is 800-732-2334 
or you can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. At the site, you can tell us what you think about the show and admire some of Dr. Falk's beautiful photographs of kidney stones. You can also sign up for our free online newsletter or subscribe to the free podcast of the show. When you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get our free e-guide to favorite home remedies. If you listen to the podcast, we'd be grateful for a review. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you so much for listening today. And please join us again next week.